Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome to Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Later on, we'll have Sean Newkirk and Matthew Lamar on to discuss the first weekend of Royals baseball, but first we continue our preview of American League Central Division opponents. Today we're looking at the Detroit Tigers with Ashley McLennan of Bless You Boys. Ashley, thanks for being on today. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Max. Well, it's good to finally talk about baseball and actual baseball games being played. <laughs> uh, and the Royals and Tigers... Mixed scenarios, but yes, it's very <laughs> exciting to have like actual baseball back being played. Yeah, and the Royals and Tigers, in fact, are, are playing this week uh, in a series up in Detroit. Um, and it'll be interesting to compare the two teams because the Tigers, like the Royals, are in a, a big rebuild. And it does seem like the Detroit, I think, has been a little more aggressive in, in kind of tearing it down to build it back up. So last year, of course, they only won 47 games, second worst record in baseball, or I guess worst record in baseball. Um, what were they kind of looking to accomplish going into the offseason? Um, I think most of us watching the Tigers go into this offseason, we're just sort of hoping we would see some moves that kind of inclined them towards the actual rebuild part of the rebuild, as opposed to this continual kind of teardown they seem to be doing. Um, it's been really nice having the first pick of the litter for um, for, for prospects the last couple of years. But um, I, for one, am really excited to see some winning baseball, which would be great. Um, so obviously, like you said, they did have the worst record the last season which was actually I think historically the worst season the Tigers have ever had not numbers wise but like quality of play wise <laughs> um, like it just looking at the metrics beyond win and loss it was easily one of the worst seasons they've ever had ever and that that says a lot counting the 2003 season um, but we did obviously get to you know pick up some exciting players and you know get some more in the mix we got to see uh, Spencer Torkelson this time around to go in with Casey Mize and he looks to be even though he wasn't dominantly a third baseman they did announce him as one so I think that'll be an interesting move the Tigers definitely do need a quality third baseman though it's hard to say if he will stick in that position for the long term um, yeah, I, I think the moves that were more interesting to me were the more immediate things. They, uh, Alavila was pretty aggressive in the offseason, picking up one-year guys like Ivan Nova. Um, CJ Crone was actually a really exciting. Like I think at the time we were like, oh, well, that's an interesting choice. And now three days into the season, I'm like, that's an interesting choice because um, he's been really exciting. Um, Jonathan Scope, obviously, as well. They re-signed Jordy Mercer, which was like, mm, okay, I'm not mad at it, but it happened. So, you know, um, those were the moves we saw going on. Yeah, those are kind of interesting because, like, like, the Orioles seem to, like they're kind of just like, we'll take guys that are free. <laughs> and, yeah. and, the, and the Royals had a very quiet offseason as well. And the Tigers actually seem like they 
we're trying to improve a little bit. I mean, Crone's actually a nice player who yep. has had some successful seasons. Uh, Scope's uh, a nice power-hitting second baseman. Uh, is is there, like, a, what's where's the fan base at right now with the rebuild? Because, you know, the Tigers, it seems like they used to be kind of the class of the Central Division. You know, they were the team that was, was really the team you had to kind of overcome if you wanted to compete in the Central. And now they've had, like, three straight years of 98-plus of losing seasons. Um, you know, I know the Tigers fan base is probably on board initially for the rebuild, but is there maybe some, some antsiness among the fan base that, that they want to kind of start seeing this team improve? Yeah, I think especially after last season with just how bad it was. And it was really disappointing because in the first, like the, the first Jays series of the year for the Tigers was so exciting. You had like, like one, like you had kind of dual no hitters going with like Jordan Zimmerman. And I think it was still Marcus Stroman. I can't remember a hundred percent, but it was like a really exciting first game. They were like doing really well through the first couple series. And I think fans were like, wait a minute, this could like be something. And then it just tanked. And I think the problem with that is I think you can have a bad team and have that team still be fun to watch if you have like exciting, enthusiastic players, especially if you have a really young team, I think you can get a lot of enthusiasm out of these guys that are just like, yeah, I'm here to play baseball and this is going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, they get their kind of charming dugout repartee going and they have dances on the base paths and that sort of stuff I think can keep fans engaged even when the wins aren't there. Um, but with the Tigers, it just seemed they were kind of just really the last couple of seasons, they, they start out strong-ish, at least in the excitement department. And then it's just like they're dragging themselves through the rest of the season. Like, I actually remember going to a game at Kauffman last year to see the Tigers play. And I remember watching, and this was when Nick Castellanos was still on the team before they traded him to the Cubs. And it was like watching him bat through molasses. Like, it just didn't <laughs> seem like he cared at all. And it was really tough to watch these teams put together, like, these these games that just were not fun to watch, not exciting. And I think that really has pulled the fan base down because it's very hard to root for a team that doesn't even look like they want to get out there and have fun. Um, so I think what we're seeing now, especially with the way that summer camp went and we have saw some really exciting young players and the way even this first series against the Reds went, I think enthusiasm is starting to peak up a little bit, which is, is a good thing. Yeah, it's always you know nice to say you want to you want the franchise to rebuild in theory, and then actually living through it, you're like, oh, okay, this is what we have to watch for the next couple of years. And it can be, you're right, it can be a real drag, not for the not just for the fans, but I'm sure for the team as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's yeah, that's something that's really tough to, to overcome. And and I think there is can be you know there's a point where it does make some sense to to try to improve the team and get them at least to a competitive point because you don't want to be an embarrassment out there. No. And I think for, for Tigers fans, it's especially tough because you look at the 2003 season, which was, you know, the worst season in history by an American league team for wins losses. And then by 2006, they were in the world series. And so I think that there may have been an unrealistic expectation based on historical precedents that, there would be a really quick turnaround for the rebuild that we would like kind of dump some of the, the dead weight. And I hate, I hate saying that about people, but you know, some of those heavy contracts that don't aren't particularly delivering. And I, I don't think we saw that this time. It's obviously taking quite a bit longer for us to even build towards having a winning team, let alone a world series winning team. Um, so yeah, it's been, I think tough. We've talked about the Tigers kind of tearing it all down, but they actually still have a couple of really interesting tradable assets, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about trading Nick Castellanos last summer, but they still have uh, pitchers Matt Boyd, um, uh, Spencer Tur Turnbull, 
and mm-hmm. uh, Michael Fulmer's back from t- from uh, Tommy John surgery. Um, is it possible we'll see any of them moved this summer, or has the shortened season kind of thrown a wrench into those plans? I think if any of them were to get moved, it would most likely be Boyd, who I think would fetch the highest value in return. Um, Turnbull's still pretty young and has a lot of control left, and he is just sort of starting to like show his real promise, and I don't think they would make a move to get rid of him just because of how young and how long he could theoretically be with the team. Um, the same thing with Fulmer. Fulmer, in spite of missing that year because of Tommy John, I think still has... We'll see what this season brings. I think this is actually the perfect year to bring him back in because he won't be over-tested and they don't really have to worry about him running out of innings and he can kind of be used in a mixed capacity with the rest of the pitching staff. I think you could use him even in a middle relief role or as like an augmented opener. Um, But I don't see him... I don't see him having a lot of interest just because he won't have been able to show how he's rebounded from surgery. So I don't know that a lot of teams would be really on the hunt for him. Um, But Boyd has and probably continues to garner a lot of interest. So I could see them moving him. But at the same time, I don't I don't know that we're going to see a lot of bold trades this year. Yeah, I don't think anyone really knows what to expect with the trade deadline, which has been pushed back to August 30th. And I'm really interested to see yeah, if there's any kind of movement at all this year. But uh, if that if there is, like you know, Tigers seem like they'd be in a pretty good uh, situation there. Uh, let's talk about some of the rookies we might see. Uh, you certainly have the rebuild. You want to see some of the younger guys. You mentioned Spencer Torkelson, who was the number one pick in the draft this year. Is there a chance we could see him in a Tigers uniform this summer? And who are some other names we could see? I'm not too... I don't think we'll see Torkelson yet. I think he's too new. And I think the only time you might see him is if they did like a September call-up situation to give him a taste. Uh, I think that will also strongly depend on how Jamer Candelario holds up health-wise this season because there isn't a lot of depth. They could use a guy like Jordy Mercer there. Nico Goodrum's been used all around the infield. Um, But I don't... I don't think we'll see Torkelson. I think he's a bit too new for them to test out. Another guy who's a bit too young that I would love to see come up but hasn't really done his reps yet is Riley Green, who was really exciting during summer camp. Like He was just looking way better out in the outfield than I think anybody anticipated he would. Um, same with Derek Hill. Like These are guys that are, I think, a bit too young for us to be seeing this season, though who knows with the way things are going. Guys that I do think we'll see um, that I'm pretty much looking forward to are the pitchers. So I'm really excited to see Casey Mize get up and take some reps against major league bats. I think we'll probably see Matt Manning come up as well, which these are guys that have been highly touted in the Tiger system. And I think for most fans who have an awareness of the minor leagues are just really excited to see what these guys can do in the majors. Yeah, I think if there's one common thread between the rebuild between the Royals, Tigers and White Sox, it seems to be like they're they're all developing that pitching. And I think maybe they've taken a look at Cleveland, seen seen how they've been able Mm -hmm. to do it. And that, that's that's going to be very important, uh, especially for, uh, you, know, you know, teams like the Royals. I mean, maybe not that so much for the Tigers, uh, but, you know, a team that can't really afford to go out there and sign those big free agents. That, that, that doesn't kind of lead me to uh, ask you, uh, you know, we know Mike Illich, you know, spent whatever it took for this team to be mm-hmm. a winner, passed away a couple of years now. The team is run by his son, Christopher. Uh, is there an expectation on how, how much he's going to be willing to spend once this team is in position to kind of supplement the rookies with some, some major league talent? I, I suspect we'll see, especially with like, like contracts, like Jordan Zimmerman's contracts coming off the books after this season, and that one's been a big one, and Miguel Cabrera's a contract they're going to have to carry for a while, obviously, I think they're signed with him for at least another four seasons, three or four seasons, so that's not going anywhere, but I think Zimmerman was the only other really big 
weight hanging around them contract-wise. They've definitely dropped a lot of those big contracts over the past couple of years. Um, I do think we would need to see a bit more of a turn towards having those young guys coming up before we see Chris Illich spend any money. And I really don't see him being the kind of spender that his dad was. I think Mike Illich was the kind of guy who loved the sport and he was so enthusiastic and he was so invested literally in getting a win in Detroit. Like he signed contracts that I don't think anybody else would have just for the hope of having that, you know, one year team, that two year team that could do it. Um, I do think we'll see, I'd say probably maybe next year or the year after we'll see Chris Illich go and, and say, open up the wallet a little bit and allow for contracts that are beyond the one year deals like Crone and and those other players that are kind of stop gaps and like maybe picking up some free agent contracts. Um, I don't see them really being in the mix for big guys. Like I don't see them doing any of those Mookie Betts style deals anytime soon to land a superstar. Um, I don't think you'll see that from the Tigers probably for another, I would say, three years. Um, I think they'll they'll build up the internal candidates a bit more and then they'll start kind of bolstering that roster with some two to three year contracts. But I don't think you're going to see big, big deals for a little bit longer. Well, as for this year, what, what should we expect as a starting lineup for the Tigers uh, in 2020? Oh, uh, pitching or hitting? Well, let's go. Let's start with the hitters first, how they look around the diamond. Um, they've been, at least from what I saw with the Red Series, have been looking pretty good. Um, CJ Crone's kind of taken over first base duties from Miguel Cabrera, which I think is a smart move for the Tigers because Miggy's looked fit since the offseason. Like, he looks like he got in really good shape, but he's still not at, like, that Miggy caliber of, of hitting. So, and I think he's really moving in towards a permanent DH kind of role, especially with how he was suffering from a lot of injuries last season and the season before. And I think it's just smarter for the team to like put him in that position and lessen any of the stress on him to keep him healthy as long as they can for the length of his contract. Um, so Crone's been there. I've been really impressed with Nico Goodrum at shortstop. Um, obviously it's really hard to say three games in, but um, he's been looking pretty good and he's sort of one of those utility guys that can go just about anywhere, but it's, um, it's been looking pretty good at shortstop, which I was surprised by. I kind of slated him as a second baseman of the future. Um, hold on one second. <laughs> Obviously, we've got, you know, Jamer Candelario at third base. I He's decidedly not the Tigers' third baseman of the future, but, um, you know, you make do. <laughs> um, the starting pitching is okay. You've got Jonathan Scope at second, which I think is a really good pickup. He's a good bat in the lineup. Um, and your outfield is kind of a mix, right? Jacoby Jones has looked really strong. I've actually been pretty surprised with him as far as power hitting goes. He used to really struggle with... Um, his patience at the plate, he would swing way too much, way too early. And that's kind of what we're seeing from Miguel Cabrera now, which is surprising. But Jones has looked good in center. He's looked good at the bat. So he's been a really positive pickup. And obviously, they also re-signed Cameron Mabin during the offseason on a one-year deal. And Mabin's kind of one of those like steadfast guys. And he's out in right field. And considering he's replacing Nick Castellanos there, and Castellanos really didn't, was not really a great offensive player <laughs> in any position, um, it's definitely a, a step up right there and then you've got you know Jordy Mercer filling in the gaps everywhere um, I think the one place they really did well in the offseason is catcher they did pick up um, Austin Romine 
Um, and he's been looking pretty good so far as well. And Tigers are kind of a team that relies on good catching. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that holds on. And then the pitching staff, we mentioned some of the names, but who, how is the rotation going to fill out? And who are some, maybe one or two uh, bullpen arms we'll see out of the Tigers this year? Um, you're going to see a lot of Joe Jimenez, who's kind of the de facto closer on the team right now. Um, we kind of like to joke that he's best on zero days rest. So <laughs> um, he he kind of he's touch and go sometimes, but he can be very reliable. And he when his command is on, he is just incredible. Um, he did really, really well in the World Baseball Classic a couple of years ago. And it was just sensational to watch his pitching. Um, obviously, for starters, Matt Boyd is going to be reliable. He's basically the team's ace. I'm looking forward to kind of seeing what comes of Daniel Norris this year. He's one of those guys that's like flashed greatness so many times but has been so hampered by injury that it really has like held him back quite a bit um obviously michael fulmer is just coming back from tommy john so we'll see what he has to offer spencer turnbull's looked really good and did last season as well so i'm looking forward to seeing what he has to offer um Yvonne Nova, obviously, they picked up in the offseason. I was not impressed with his outing against the Reds the other day. Um, but as, you know, a pitcher in a lineup goes, it's, you know, it is what it is. Um, and on, they've kind of, like, slated in Dario Agrizal as well. And he, this is his first time really pitching in the majors, so I'm not as familiar with him because I don't watch a ton of the minor league stuff. Um, he did okay in summer camp, um, but he kind of is just a... Uh, a body in there until he kind of figures himself out. So we'll see what he does. He is actually going to be pitching in this upcoming series. That's a, that's a nice description of a lot of guys for the Royals as well. He's a body up there just to, yeah. just to be there for a while. <laughs> really just until <laughs> someone better get comes along. Those guys can surprise you right, too. Right. So it's, it is, you know, we'll see what happens, but he, I mean, there's like some other guys in middle relief guys like Tyler Alexander, Kyle Funkhauser, um, obviously, we see a fair bit of Buck Farmer, who's a, a reliable kind of late innings reliever and has done pretty well for the Tigers this past series, at least. Um, the Tigers, and I, I'm sure as a Royals fan, you can relate to this, have not had the best luck with their bullpen, historically speaking. Um, so it's it's always touch and go. Um, I think what will really help them this year is having so many readily available pitchers in that taxi squad that there are guys that they could slot into a relief position that may be future starters. So you can have that extra middle innings relief if you need it, especially for guys like Fulmer and Norris who are you know just coming off injuries or injury prone. Um, it kind of gives you a little bit of a buffer, and I think that can only help them. Well, it'll be interesting to see how the Royals and Tigers match up because I know a lot of Royals fans were saying, you know, if we beat up on the Tigers this year, we have a chance to be competitive. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm sure Tigers fans are looking at us and saying, if we beat up on the Royals, we have a chance yeah. to be competitive. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we'll get, we'll get our chance to see how the teams match up this week. And uh, I, I think it's going to be curious. It's going to be really interesting to see how these two teams rebuild their franchises. Uh, in a lot of some, in a lot of ways, they're taking a lot of similar approaches, but in other ways, they're, they're taking very different approaches. Uh, yeah. and we'll have to see which one is more successful at the end. It'll definitely be interesting. Well, you can read all of Ashley's work and other news and analysis on the Detroit Tigers at blessyouboys.com. Ashley, thanks so much for being on with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Max. Well, we're back, and joining me now is Sean Newkirk. Sean, uh, how are you doing today? Good. We've got uh, a few official games in, so we can officially start talking about, about baseball well, in, yeah. in a proper fashion. 
baseball is back, although for how long, I guess we'll have to see. I don't know. I don't really know. Uh, also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing today? I am doing good. I am. You have no idea how ecstatic I am to uh, write about baseball. Um, you know, the off season is long enough. Like when your team doesn't make the playoffs, you know, they're out in September and then you have to go through October and November and December and then January and March, uh, February. And then March, you start to get some baseball, but it's basically six months. But this time around, we basically did like a nine or ten month off season, which is terrible, and I don't recommend it to anyone. No, and I, you know, I was really glad to see that like our numbers on our like the traffic on our site like skyrocketed this week. I mean, I th- I thought maybe we just lost people for good, but you know, all it took was baseball coming back finally to get uh, people to start commenting and, and reading our site again. And it's nice to have everyone back. It's nice to be be able to talk about baseball. You're right. Uh, and yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. It's been the hiatus of like ten months now. Uh, but the Royals did get their weird 60-game season underway on Friday with a 2-0 loss to the Indians in Cleveland, but they bounced back the next day to win 3-2 to get their first win in extra innings on Saturday. And that came after an, a very impressive Major League debut by Brady Singer. Uh, Singer, of course, was the Royals' first-round pick in the 2018 draft. He's been one of their top prospects for a while now. And he really seemed to live up to that billing in, in his start on Saturday. He worked five innings against the Indians. Uh, kept him to just three hits and two runs, striking out seven, which was just one shy of the club record for a major league debut. And he walked two hitters. Um, I don't know, Matthew, it seemed like there was a lot to like there. The slider was looking pretty good. What was kind of your impression of Brady Singer in his uh, debut? Yeah, I mean, so I have, I have two main impressions of Brady Singer. The first one is that, uh, you know, he, he pitched really well. Um, and it was really nice to see. So um, if you didn't get to catch it, Brady Singer is mostly a two-pitch pitcher, uh, kind of like Brad Keller in that regard. Um, he has a fastball that is about 93, 94 miles an hour you know, on average. He, I think he got up to 95 or 96, um, but you know, lives in the 92 to 94 mile an hour range. Um, and it has some, it's, it's one of my favorite fastballs to watch or that kind of fastball because he throws it and it, it has what the industry calls arm side run, which is basically just a fancy way that has a lot of vertical movement towards the right side. So he, he had a couple of pitches where, against a left-hand batter he threw it and it looked like it was an inside pitch and it just whoop just went to the strike zone and and you know struck a couple of guys out that way um and then he pairs that with a really sharp biting uh slider uh and that's really good his changeup, um i was on, i was on the lookout for it i don't know if i saw one um he threw I, two. I re- yeah he threw two of them which yeah is not I a mean, lot <laughs> which is not a lot and um when I looked at the at the box score, I if I remember correctly, every single base runner he gave up was against a lefty. Every single one. And uh, coming into this year, the knock on Brady Singer was, you know, he's death to righties, but he doesn't have that out pitch against lefties. And I just thought it was really interesting. Um, you know, he played against uh, righties and lefties, and he gave up all of his base runners and hits and walks to all, all the lefties. Um and so that'll be something to watch going forward. Um, but the second thing, and I, I mentioned this in, in the, the comment section of the, of the recap, but um, like it's clear that Brady Singer is like a cut above what the Royals have been trotting out you know, uh, to be starting pitchers for the last couple of years. Like it, I, I feel like Royals fans have just kind of forgotten what it's like to watch a like top-notch blue-chip starting pitcher prospect we haven't really had one since like 
I don't know, Danny Duffy in 2011? I'm not really. I mean, even when we had like Brandon Finnegan that was in the bullpen, we haven't really seen someone like Brady Singer. Um, and he was, it was just so refreshing because you could see the talent that was there. You could see the pitches that were there. You could see his poise. You know, he, he was clearly not bothered at all by anything. Um, and it was just really, really nice to see, oh, hey, look, it's, this is like a starting pitching prospect that other teams have sometimes, and now the Royals do. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I actually wrote an article in anticipation of his debut about like anticipated pitching debuts for Royals prospects, and I was and I was kind of struck by like how few of them there are. Like, you know, I th- I don't even remember anticipating Duffy that much. Your Donna Ventura in thirteen, I think there was some buzz because he was throwing hundred miles an hour, um, but I don't think he was like a super top prospect or anything like that. And then, like, I don't know, before that, I guess Luke Hochaver, you know, we had some anticipation for him. Um, and then before that, I don't know. I mean, like, Jim Pitsley and Jeff Austin, I guess, had some, you know, they were high draft picks, but they kind of struggled in the minors, if I remember correctly. So there haven't been a lot of, like, you know, guys we've really anticipated. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of nice to – and I know there, there are a lot of high expectations for Singer – um, and he kind of exceeded a lot of them, I think, or at least matched them uh, and looked pretty good. Sean, I know you've been maybe, I guess, maybe not as high on, as on Singer than some other talent evaluators. Uh, what did you see out of him in his uh, first start? Well, first off, this is Matt Strom erasure because Matt Strom was a top <laughs> 100 prospect. <clears throat> uh, and he's 74th overall, I think, uh, by Fangraphs. Anyways. But he broke, uh, he broke in in the bullpen, I think, right? I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you know, I thought Singer – I always have always thought that Singer has this kind of – this is going to be demeaning, but it's not meant to be – like this high school kind of repertoire where it's like fastball off-speed – or excuse me, fastball breaking ball. Um, doesn't ever have to use a changeup. And that's basically what he's always been. College, you can't quite do that, but college you can have really, you know, two good pitches and make it mostly work, um, as we've seen with, you know, n- numerous college prospects. Uh, but, you know – I thought I thought the debut was fine. I thought it was you know good overall. Um, it was really bizarre. He stuck to his kind of what got him there. Uh, Through fifty percent fastballs, forty seven and a half percent curveball sliders. I think I think a slurve is the more proper word for it, but I can live with either if you want to call it a slider or a curve. But um, and then yeah, two and a half percent changeup. So that's going to be the really big question mark. Because, yeah, I mean, as Matt mentioned, the book is against lefties and the changeup would be the pitch that, you know, could beat lefties. And, of course, you know, he threw two and a half percent of them. So um, I thought it was good for what it was mostly in that sense of, you know, it, it stuck to who we thought he was in, in from a repertoire standpoint. And we'll just continue to see um, he threw nine straight nine or ten straight sliders at one point. One of them was a really good one to get Lindor swinging low um, or nearly in the dirt. Um, so it's just, it's a really weird to see and Brad Keller again, Matt nailed it. I think Brad Keller is who I was thinking of as well, of a guy that's like a two pitch kind of pitcher. Um, Jake Junis is similar ish in that sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was definitely really fun and exciting to watch. Um, I am not quite thinking, you know, I, I think it's mixed on who you ask, but I still think of him more as like a number three, four type, um, potentially a bullpen guy. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it will give the season something to continue to look forward to. Yeah, I think you know the, the development of that changeup. I think it's probably going to be key to him taking it to the next level and being a, a top of the line starter. But um, you know, as far as the two pitches he has, they both look. I think like you know plus offerings. 
the the you know I think Matthew you're right the the movement on his fastball was very impressive the bite to his slider I think was really impressive uh, I know that he uh, Patrick Brennan pointed out that he got uh, he had a 17 percent uh, swinging strike rate in his start which that would have been the third best start in that category out of all Royals pitchers last year so you know he's obviously got good stuff that has, and swing and miss stuff that we don't really have a lot of right now in the rotation. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to build on. It's just his first start, and we'll see how that changeup develops. And, you know, I'm curious to see once the league kind of gets a book on him, like they've seen his slider a few times, uh, how he kind of adjusts to that and how he develops his pitches. Um, but, but no, I think to see a guy like uh, kind of come in with high expectations and meet them, uh, very impressive, and, and, and I think there's a lot to like there with Brady Singer. So definitely looking forward to, to more of what he has to offer. Um, you know, he, he gives the Royals a potential starter to fill out the rotation there with Danny Duffy, who, who actually looked uh, also looked pretty good on his, his first start on Friday. Otherwise, the team has kind of had to scramble out to fill out the rest of the rotation. Right now, Brad Keller and Jacob Junis are still out, uh, and they could be out for up to three weeks. So manager Mike Matheny has been kind of forced to be a little bit creative in how he's handled the pitching rotation and the bullpen. And I, uh, I had an article out this week about how so far, and I know it's only a couple games, but... So far, it seems like Mike Matheny has uh, been much more analytics-minded than, than his predecessor, Ned Yost. And we know Matheny talked about that a lot when he uh, was hired for this job and took an online course in analytics and talked about being fascinated by the subject. But, uh, you know, that could have been lip service. But instead, it seems like in the first couple games, we've seen him pull a starter in the fifth inning because he didn't want him to go the third time through a lineup. We've seen him use a bullpen day to get through uh, on Sunday. We've seen him uh, hit a slugger like Jorge Soler in the number two hole. Uh, and we've seen him use defensive shifts, including uh, six outfielders for Miguel Cabrera. Uh, Matthew, what's kind of been your early impression on Mike Matheny and uh, what are you taking away from him? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at Mike Matheny. Um, I, I sort of came around to the hire eventually, you know, a couple months ago, I thought, okay, you know, he's saying all the right things, like all the right things. And, and, you know, by all accounts, he seems to be like a really good guy. Um, so, so it's been, it's been fun to watch, uh, to watch him just be different than the Ned Yost because we had Ned Yost for so long, you know, it's, it's, you kind of just think, okay, it's the manager again, but like in real life, baseball managers don't stick around for as long as, as Ned Yost did very often. Um, I do think it's been slightly amusing how much of a microscope that Matheny has been under. Uh, personally, I don't think the Royals are nearly good enough. Um, for all of us to just inspect his every move, which has generally been happening in our like comment sections, like people are really into criticizing <laughs> and defending Mike Matheny, and like the Royals are not nearly good enough to to spend that effort. But you know, well, that's we how, that's it. how you know baseball's back is when a team that's <laughs> like in, way back in the standings, people are complaining about the number nine hitter in the lineup. So yeah, yeah. you're going to get that kind of enthusiasm, I think. Yeah, you know, and, and that's, that's totally fine. Baseball's back. People, people are, are happy. It's, it's just kind of amusing to me. Um, I do think that we've had a little bit of remnants of his national league um, sort of managing history. Like he's, he's done a couple of, of pinch hitting moves and like shifts around that have been like reminiscent of what a national league manager would do. And I'm not sure if Ned Yost would have, would have done that for instance, like, pinch hitting Eric Mejia for Nick Lo- Nicky Lopez uh, in what was that the first or second game or something he, he he's done like a couple of um of substitutions that I was like huh that seems like something a National League manager would do 
Um, but other than that, you're right. He's he's been very analytic, analytically minded. He's he's uh, you know backed up what he's you know said. I think the most notable thing that he's done is um, the when he had a couple of shifts in that first game, um, and Barlow got a couple of what would have been ground ball double plays and sort of a more normal defensive alignment. Uh, Matheny uh, had had shifts going on, so they they went through. The Indians scored two runs and won the game. And he was asked about it afterwards, and he basically said the the right thing about it, which is, look, we have a, we have a process. We know that these uh, you know these defensive positioning shifts work. And people always focus on the negative, which is true. They always do. And they don't focus on the positive. Um, so if you haven't seen, we're, so we're recording this on um, Tuesday. And um, there was a Tigers batter. I forgot who it was. But he hit like a rifle of a line drive. Um, and it would have scored two runs. But guess what? Whit Merrifield was right there. And guess what? He was in a defensive shift. And he wouldn't have been there normally. So... I, it's been nice to see Matheny follow up what he's been doing, which has been, for the most part, very statistically minded with some really smart um, reasoning behind it. And it's, it's, it's been very nice, and I, I will be fascinated to see what he does when, A, the Royals are good, and it really matters what the back end of the bullpen does, um, and B, when the Royals actually have starting pitchers and he's not forced to do these bullpen games all the time, because I feel like that's just... Uh, <laughs> Um, what is it? Emperor's new groove. You're, you're, you're wrecking my groove or whatever he says. <laughs> I feel like a little bit of that is going on too. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I know it probably is not going to matter that much. We probably shouldn't hyper-focus on his, his managerial decisions, but I did like that. He did kind of have an urgency to start this year. Cause I do think if you have a shortened season like this, um, it makes sense to not get, you, know, you want to avoid getting buried like the Royals have the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, you've got that deep pen. You've got a 30-man roster. You might as well use it. I'm not sure I would have pulled Danny Duffy in the fifth inning, but I can understand his logic for it. And it is, I think, refreshing to hear a manager say, well, here's why I made this decision. And he's not just, you know, I got to love Ned Yost, but, you know, a lot of his rationales were like, well, we win with Eski in the leadoff spot. He ambushes guys. And there's not really not really a lot of evidence to back that up. I mean, I, you know, other than win-loss record, which is hard to explain. Uh, so it's nice that I don't think I'm going to agree with Mike Matheny all the time, but I can understand where he's coming from and why he's making the decision he is. And I think a lot of the times I am agreeing with him. I think, you know, the def- defensive shifts, like you mentioned, hitting Solaire second. Um, I like, you know, I like the general idea of pulling the pitcher, starting pitcher early, especially if some of these relievers are as good as they've looked so far. Um, and using relievers in unconventional roles, like Ian Kennedy in the sixth inning. I think, I think it's all a, a refreshing change, and we'll have to see how it works out. Um, but so far, I've, I've really liked what I've seen. Sean, uh, what, what's kind of your take on Matheny so far? Is it, is it maybe a little too early to, to really judge him too much? It's kind of funny that, like, <clears throat> um, we're, you know, Ned Yost, and, you know, maybe wasn't that far behind, but we think of Ned Yost as kind of dinosaur-esque manager, even though he still did some stuff that, you know, you could consider analytic analytical, um, that, like, going from, like, a, a negative analytics to just basically doing, like, the... The average is like seen as a giant step, right? So it's like 
most teams have been batting their you know their best their best hitter either lead off or second and pulling guys early so it's like it's just nice to see <laughs> the Royals go from you know doing nothing to doing at least what the rest of the league is or most of the league is doing so um yeah I mean I infor- I have been away for most of the weekend um on vacation so I haven't got to watch every single inning every game in fact the singer start I kind of had to just go back and rewatch um but I've caught several innings over the uh over the weekend uh when I could and yeah I mean it's at least nice to see um you know, a starter pulled before Yosted, and unfortunately now we have to think of the Matheny version of Yosted because Yosted was just so perfect in props to, I don't know, probably Craig Brown probably thought of it or something. I don't know who thought of it, but anyways, props to them. Uh, so it's just nice, at least if we're going to get what I would consider the bare the bare minimum amount of analytics. Um, it's nice to see the Matheny's at least on board for that, if not maybe uh, above what you might see from like you know a Dusty Baker or something. Yeah, I don't. I, we'll have to come. Up, I don't. Matheny doesn't really roll off the tongue the way Yosted does. We'll have to come up with something else. Uh, but you're right. You know, I, you know, I, I, I do want to give them credit, but you're right. This is like stuff almost every other team does right now at this point, and so it's almost you know you'd be have to be pretty retrograde at this point to not not adopt some, at least some of these strategies. Um, but but it, like it is good to see, and I, it does seem like there's been a a difference in organizational philosophy in the last year. There's been a real shift, I think. In revamping the minor league development, in uh, kind of the adopting uh, some of the analytics, uh, that that feels a lot different with this organization. We'll see if it actually is a indeed a shift, but uh, it, it does seem like they're saying and doing some of the right things. And I'm kind of really encouraged by the what direction they're going in. Uh, I, I guess, Sean, you've missed out some of the games, but, but Matthew, I did want to ask you if there's anyone else or anything else that has kind of struck you from the first weekend of games. I guess to me. The bullpens kind of stood out just because that's that was something that was so bad last year, and uh, so far this year, you know they they didn't have a great game Sunday. Although I think that was more Jorge Lopez uh, than anything, but um, yeah, I think you know Craig, uh, Trevor Rosenthal, Greg Holland looked like kind of their old self. Uh, Tyler Zuber looked very impressive coming out of the pen. Um, I think there were some things to like about Josh Stamont. Uh Was there anything else or anyone else that maybe stood out to you from the first weekend of play? Yeah, so, so one of the things that, that stood out to me, um, and this is, I agree with you, the bullpen has, has been pretty good, although I feel like because the, it's been just so um, weird um, in the first couple of games with having only two starting pitchers, um, it's it's hard to get like a, into a rhythm and to be like, okay, this person is, is going to do this in this situation, um, which is, you know, to, your, to our previous talking point about Mike Matheny doing more, um, you know, variable bullpen roles. I'm not sure if we'll ever see like a, a consistent, okay, the sixth inning is, you know, this inning or the Yosted version, which is the seventh inning is Kelvin Herrera and the, this whole thing. Um, I have sort of been struck by how poorly Mondesi has looked. Um, and I don't really know what to, to make of it. You know, last year he was he was OK um, offensively. You know, he had a lot of steals, which is always good. Um, but he he sort of looked like he was going to break out um, in in 2018. Um, and in 2018, he hit 14% above league average. I mean, it was like, okay, this is this is this is it. Mondesi's arriving, but he took a step back in 2019, and this year so far, he's just not, you know, not really done that well. Um, and that sort of struck me, and maybe not like super alarming, but um, you know, the Royals really need Mondesi to be le- like legitimately good. 
Um, and he, he, he's just been kind of under, underwhelming. He's made a couple of defensive errors, um, which is not like him. So it's it's been kind of kind of weird. That's stood out to me. Um, other than that, you know, uh, other things have, have kind of stood out a little bit. Um, it's nice, like, w- watching Whit Merrifield is a treat because he's just so good. Um, you know, he doesn't have the power to be, like, next-level uh, offensive producer, but he's such a great hitter. It's always fun watching him, you know, step step up to the plate. And it's just sort of like, it's it's still just totally bizarre that it took him so long to break into the major leagues because he's, you know, clearly really good. Yeah, Merrifield he really stood out to me on Friday too because, look, Shane Bieber was on. Yeah, Shane Bieber was really good, and he was on his game, and there was a big strike zone, but it just seemed like everyone in the lineup was just absolutely guessing up there except for Whit Merrifield. He's the only one that really seemed like he had a good, good strategy and a good plan of what to do up there, and he he just yeah he gives you professional at bats every time, and I know it's kind of cliche at this point, but but he is just kind of a consummate hitter who's who does his business, goes about, and he's just off to a great start this year. Another three run home run. Uh, against the Tigers on Tuesday night. Uh, so it's nice to see him get off to a hot start. Um, so, yeah, hopefully he can keep it up. Monacy, I, yeah, I, he hasn't looked that great. Um, I wouldn't. I guess I won't put too much stock in it yet. We do know he had that shoulder injury that probably was going to keep him out for the start of the season uh, initially. Hopefully he's had, you know, he's had a couple months now to recover from that, so you hope that he's fine. But, um, yeah, I'm curious to see how healthy he stays in a short season like this. Uh, and it's getting to the point where, you know, we're kind of tired, tired of hearing about, about his, uh, potential. Like he kind of has to start putting up the numbers now because, uh, you know, every, every day we get closer to free agency for him. And, um, so I kind of want to see him actually put it all together and, and have a good season. Well, the, um, let's, uh, we did have another transaction this week. Uh, the Royals added some pitching depth. We know they've had some losses, uh, in the rotation, but they did sign Matt Harvey, uh, uh, an old enemy from the past. Uh, to a minor league deal this year. Uh, you, remember, you may remember Harvey from the 2015 World Series where he uh, was a starter for the Mets, notably gave up a ninth-inning lead in the deciding game five. Uh, he's now 31 years old. He has, you know, he was a really good pitcher at the Mets in 2013 and 15, but he had thoracic outlet syndrome surgery in 2016 and hasn't really been the same pitcher since. Last year, he had a 7.09 ERA and 12 starts with the Angels before they released him. Sean, you know, is there anything we should expect out of Harvey at this point? Uh, I know I, it's a minor league deal, so, you know, obviously they're not really losing much, but um, I don't know, thoracic outlet syndrome surgery doesn't seem like it has a great track record. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like far worse record of it than um, Tommy John, um, which I think people are coming around to that idea now that shoulder surgery is a lot worse than um, elbow surgery for pitchers uh, as far as recovery rates go. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I truthfully, I literally have not seen Matt Harvey pitch since the Reds in 2018. I totally, I don't think I watched the start of his Angels, uh, a start of him when he pitched for the Angels last year in 2019. Um, so I have, I really have not seen him in a while, but, you know, it's a decent, nice try for reclamation process. I mean, you know, who knows? You know, it's you go into something with zero expectations, really, from from him, and if you get something out of it, great. If not, you know, it, great. You know, no worries. Especially since it's a minor league deal, uh, and it's you know very little. To, well, I think it was like five seventy five, five hundred seventy five thousand or something yeah. like that. Prorated too. Um, yeah, prorated. So a pretty low cost, you know, low risk transaction. Um, but yeah, it's one of those where you know you can't expect much. Um, 
And for some reason now, when I think of Matt Harvey, I think of uh, John Buck consoling him, uh, That the gif of John Buck consoling him. You can go Google that, but it's when he got Tommy John, and he was so, so good in uh, 2013, um, and then had Tommy John in 14, and then, you know, kind of good good 15, not as good 16, fell off. You know, so it's unfortunate to see what happened to the Dark Knight. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see him in Orioles uniform, and um, you know, I, I think he, unfortunately, well, fortunately for Royals fans, he goes down in Royals lore. Um, doesn't matter what he does. He could win the Cy Young this year for the Royals, but uh, he'll always be known for that uh, for that World Series game. Yeah, it's kind of a cruel trick the Royals are doing, bringing back Lucas Duda and now Matt Harvey. And I don't know. Yeah. If, I don't know if Yohannes Cespedes is next or, or, or Daniel Murphy, but uh, uh, it's interesting. It's, it makes it a little awkward situation to bring in Harvey, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, he's he's still young. I guess he's thirty-one, uh, Matt Matthew. But uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we can expect anything out of Harvey at this point. Although I said the same thing about Homer Bailey last year, and it turns out he was he still had a little bit something left in the tank. So I don't know. What do you, is there anything we should expect out of Matt Harvey at this point? Uh, you, you know, you bring up Homer Bailey. I was I was just going to do that. I think that that's a really good uh, comp. Uh, Homer Bailey and Matt Harvey were pitchers, you know, with a lot of great stuff early on in careers, had some injuries, then had some down years. Um, and then you bring them in and they're a veteran and, you know, they know how to pitch. Um, and you just hope that they can sort of, you know, reacquire a little bit of what they had previously. And if they do, that's great. You're paying them the league minimum. Um, then you can flip them. And if not, then, you know, whatever. Um, if you really want to be masochistic, and Matt Harvey's not good. You could just, you know, trot him out there and then hang up a picture of the 2015 World Series uh, parade on his locker as motivation or something. That's just cruel. It sure is. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't expect anything. But this is exactly the type of move that teams like the Royals were making. I, I believe I attempted to do this exact thing in uh, last year's. Um, SB Nation MLB sim that you run. Um, I think I offered Matt Harvey a minor league deal, but somebody had already had offered him like a major league deal. So, you know, whatever. But, Matt, but I, no, I tried to Matt, do it, so. The commissioner who runs that simulation is a crook anyway. So <laughs> it's I all right. trust. I've been screwed over by so many moves by that guy that runs it that, you know. It's totally, it's a fixed game. Like, what can I say? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, he didn't have much interest in real life this past winter. He, in fact, he was looking at Korea as perhaps his next career step. So I guess the Royals kind of threw him a life preserver. And we'll see. You know, his velocity, you know, Sean, you, you didn't see him pitch last year. I don't think you were missing much with his ERA. It's over seven. And it looks like his velocity was way down. I mean, he was throwing 96 in his prime. Uh, he was down to 93 last year. So, you know, he, we'll see if he has anything left in the tank. I guess I'm not real optimistic. It sounds like the Royals are actually kind of looking at him with an eye for 2021. Um, which is kind of interesting because you would think that maybe some of those 2018 draft class kids would be ready by then, but maybe he's like a placeholder they can put in there until like Daniel Lynch is ready to go. Uh, so that's a possibility, but I, you know, probably doesn't have any big long-term effects. But And Matt Harvey is a good lesson on um, just the, oh gosh, just how volatile pitchers are. Because remember that Mets rotation was like Harvey, Syndergaard, oh gosh, what's his name? Zach Wheeler. Um okay. Who else am I missing? There's, I think Jacob there's someone. Jacob Degrom. Degrom, yeah, yeah. Like they look like 
just an amazing rotation. Even and, you know, Steven Matz is a rookie. I mean, yeah, Matz. Yeah, yeah, right. And I think yeah, I just it's just wild. So hopefully the you know hopefully the Royals trio or you know not whatever the four the, quartet. The, oh my gosh, the quartet does well. So yeah. Well, finally, uh, the Royals have the youngest and perhaps most popular team owner in all of sports. Uh, 24-year-old Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, fresh off signing a $500 million deal with the Chiefs, has been welcomed into the Royals' ownership team. We don't quite know how much of the team he owns, but it's probably not a whole lot. Um, Local businessman John Sherman will continue to be the managing partner, but Mahomes does add some star power, joining a group that includes some 20 local investors, including actor Eric Stone Street. And Sean, will Patrick Mahomes being in the ownership group make any kind of impact uh, on the Royals? Yeah, I mean it's no, I mean it's a cool brand ambassador, uh, brand ambassadorship kind of thing. Um, I uh, in the little piece that I wrote and kind of guess you and I co-authored um, this this afternoon. Um, yeah, I mean it, he would have to. The Royals just sold for a billion, so even if he were to be able to, you know, convince, let's say one of the other twenty-two minority owners, um, or excuse me, twenty-two owners typically. Really, twenty-one minority plus John Sherman is the majority. Um, if he were to convince one of the other owners to say, "Okay, I'll buy your shares from you," which is extremely unlikely, given that they haven't even owned them for a year, even one percent would be, you know, ten million dollars. And Mahomes has just made slightly over that for his career. Now, of course, he's got endorsements and whatnot, and a pretty big contract coming up. But like we know, MLB contracts are different than, excuse me, NFL contracts are different than MLB contracts and that they're not fully guaranteed. So I would really doubt he would be outlaying $10 million worth, um, if he could even get at that valuation. Uh, I would really would, you know, don't think he's going to just put up $10 million right away um, just for it. So it seems like maybe he put in, I don't know if I had to guess, maybe a, a million or so, um, you know, somewhere in a few basis points or maybe half a percent of ownership um probably you know collective either john sherman gave him a piece or he's able to convince a couple of the co-owners to or the minority owners to buy theirs um but yeah it's just kind of a cool thing to one say that you own a team um you know he's going to be with the chiefs you know uh theoretically for 10 years or 12 years i guess two plus the 10 he's extended for uh so you know it just kind of helped cement him in kansas city for for that tenure and obviously going forward if you know the sherman ownership doesn't sell in the next 12 years or before mahomes retires um so i think if it's more just kind of a cool brand ambassadorship as opposed to you know having his own office and you know being there for player negotiations and whatnot um he'll just basically have you know see tickets to the game whenever he wants and um, just kind of, you know, be part of the the PR of of the Royals as opposed to any kind of major player in the organization. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I don't, I don't expect this to make like an impact or anything like that, but it does make me wonder. Like, well, first of all, I think Patrick Mahomes is very savvy, and you know, this endears him even more to Kansas City sports fans if it didn't already. Uh, and it does show him like putting down his roots in the community. But it also makes me wonder if he is is so savvy, and you know, his dad was a professional athlete that he's already thinking maybe a little bit to life after football. Uh, we know, you know, your football career can be over, you know, in the blink of an eye. Um, and that maybe there's a possibility that he wants to learn from the, the, the ownership group so that maybe one day he becomes a managing partner like a Derek Jeter, you know, and, and, and usually he's not going to have like the billions it would take to own a team outright or to be a majority owner. But, you know, in, in situations like Derek Jeter or Magic Johnson with the Dodgers, um, they can be still be the managing partner 
with with the minority share, like kind of be the front man. Uh, George W. Bush did this with the Texas Rangers, um, and and you know that could be maybe something he's thinking about down the road. But I, I don't know, Matthew. Is there what what, what kind of struck you with the Mahomes uh, deal in the with the with the Royals? Well, I thought it was kind of cool, and honestly, like one of my first thoughts was I, I don't understand why more players don't don't do this right i mean i i suppose it was a you know a perfect situation for mahomes in in that uh the team just sold and it was a bunch of people it wasn't just like one dude right it's not like he went up to david glass and said hey uh mr glass can i buy you know a, a portion of the a portion of the royals so it was it was the situation that the royals are in but i, I kind of don't understand why this doesn't happen more often right i mean if you need 10 million dollars um at the most right which is one percent which is what you know sean was sort of talking about or five million if you're putting in half a percent like athletes have have made that and like the top athletes like patrick mahomes who not only had make you know 30 million dollars a year 40 million dollars a year but also have endorsements you know uh like you think of how much money a peyton manning or a tom brady has made not just because of their salary but because of the endorsements they have i i i, I don't under, understand why this doesn't happen more often right i mean if you want to endear yourself to your city you buy you know that this just makes perfect sense like why hasn't russell wilson and his uh 90 million dollars of of you know money that he's made like why hasn't he put in some some money to buy a portion of the Mariners. I uh, guess you know, I was just know. actually just gonna mention that because he actually is part of the ownership group that is trying to bring a team to Portland, Oregon. So, and I, I, I that is a good point. I think you you are starting to see it more now because we have athletes that are making enough. I think to get into the ownership groups, uh, like so, like Derek Jeter has the money. A Rod is looking to buy the Mets or at least be part of an ownership group to buy the Mets. Whereas, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, maybe they didn't have, I guess, enough money to kind of get by into these groups. There's also the Royal, the Royals ownership group is kind of interesting in that they have a ton of local investors. And they probably wanted as many local people with money that they could find because they wanted to kind of establish to the fans, hey, this team is not moving anywhere. Um, and, and so like we're, you know, like with a, another team like the Mets, I think are owned just by the Wilpon brothers. Um, so the Royals are owned actually by a group, so that that, that unique uniqueness of it, I think, you know, opened the door for Mahomes a little bit too. But but you're right, I think it, it would make a lot of sense for a lot more athletes to to get involved and do this. Uh, and it is kind of curious, and maybe this will start happening more and more. But uh, it is kind of cool to see Mahomes uh, getting involved with the Royals, and, and we'll maybe we'll see him in the owner's box at at Kauffman Stadium. Well, let's wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Uh, Matthew, why don't you kick it off tonight? All right, so my, uh, mine is going to be a little uh, little off the wall here, uh, but my review uh, is steak. Um, <laughs> that's that's right, steak, the thing that you cook and eat and comes from a cow. Um, so uh, recently I uh, made steak for the first time, and, you know, I have sort of always thought, oh, it's it's really hard to cook steak. Uh, I'm not even going to try. You know, when you get a restaurant, steak isn't always the, the best anyways. Um, and it's kind of inconsistent. So I just thought, you know, I'm not going to try. But so I, I got a flank steak uh, from Hy-Vee uh, and I wanted to, you know, pan sear it and cut it up and have it in like a quesadilla um, type situation. 
and I, I did it and it was good and it took very little effort and now I have leftovers because it was a giant steak um, and my wife doesn't eat meat so I w- would recommend steak so steak yeah it's what's for dinner right and then steak and is, this is not a spon- this is not sponsored content just to, to make sure <laughs> we're, we're not being paid by the beef council so correct Sean what do you have for us tonight um, I'm going to roll. So Emily, uh, Emmy's got um, announced uh, this morning. Uh, better Saul, Better Call Saul was snubbed as far as for Odenkirk, and um, oh my gosh, I'm totally. Uh, Leah Seahorn, she got totally. Hooked. Yes, yes. Sorry, sorry. Yes, she's fantastic on that show. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, the the winner of these nominations go was uh, the Watchmen, and I know I've recommended on it before, but I'm going to recommend it again. Um, cheat a little bit here. It got 26 nominations. It, it's it's just so absolutely outstanding of a show. Really easy to watch. I think it's only maybe eight episodes, um, and they're just going and it's just the one season, and that's all they're going to do. It's just fantastic. It, it's Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross who. Um, I've done soundtracks before. I think notoriously, notoriously the Facebook, our social social network soundtrack, um, and, and oh my gosh, the girl on the whatever the, all those series of books were with the Swedish books. Uh, the the girl. Oh with my the gosh, dragon tattoo. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I think they did all the for that. Um, anyways, completely, just everything about that show is fantastic. The acting, the writing, the music. It could not have been more timely given the um, kind of current circumstances our country is going through from a, a racial standpoint. And that's the crux of the show and really what it's about. It's about starts the Tulsa race riots. Um, so I think it's just a fantastic show and I cannot recommend it anymore. If it, if it, although I don't count it towards HBO's best shows, cause I think you need a couple seasons to get there. If I were to set the minimum to only one season, I think that would be in the conversation with the Sopranos and with the wire. It's just, it's outstanding. So if you haven't seen it, the Watchmen, incredible, um, nothing more I can say. And I expect it to do very, very well. Um, when the Emmy, uh, night comes. Yeah. That first episode is really fantastic. I, I didn't know, I had no idea about the Tulsa race riots. Um, and that was, and so that, so that part is true. A lot of the other, obviously much of the rest of the show is, is fictionalized, but, uh, but yeah, just a fantastic start to that show. And I will co-sign that, that endorsement. Uh, my uh, review this week uh, is a book called Everybody Lies. Uh, it's called uh, by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He is a former Google sci- data scientist. And what he's done is he's taken a lot of data from Google um, to kind of ferret out insights about human behavior that we don't necessarily admit in surveys or studies. Um, so these are kind of our deepest, darkest secrets that have to pertain to sex and race and all sorts of things that we're not going to tell someone face-to-face or even over the phone. Uh, and I, you know, I think I'm a little dubious of some of the claims. I, you know, I think Google searches and Google data can only tell you so much. And I think he does make some caveats for that stuff. But um, it is really interesting and eye-opening, I think, uh, just to see kind of how racist some people can be online when you're you know cloaked in anonymity uh what people really think of of sexual behaviors um there's there's just i think just a lot of really interesting things about how people think about relationships uh, how they think about money um how they think about violence um and like i said i think you have to kind of um you know have your skepticism hat on just because the data he's taking is from google and 
uh, you know, people do tend to, uh, there's a tendency to, uh, for the outliers to kind of uh, emerge more on Google because you tend to, you know, look, search for really provocative things, I think, online um, more than you would in real life. But but I think it was a really interesting, I guess, look and an interesting way to think about things. And, and maybe a few, there are a few enlightening behaviors that you'll find there. Uh, so I would recommend uh, Big Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Well, that'll do us for us this week. Thanks again to Ashley McClendon of Bless You Boys for being on, and thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on the show, and thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And I'll talk to you.